Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and this is the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. We've all heard it, that myth that the French are the cheese-eating surrender monkeys. It still persists in our understanding and telling of the Second World War. The idea that the French didn't put up a fight, and that's why the German military were able to sweep through and take the whole of France in just six weeks, from May to June 1940. But, to be frank, it just simply isn't true. As Professor Olivier Schmidt, a French historian from the Centre for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark explains, over 100,000 French troops died in that ferocious six-week fight. And those memories? Well, they live on. They live on in a fractured France during that period and into the 20th century. We find out about how de Gaulle reacted when he learnt of the French defeat and how they mounted a sustained attack to try and retake France. Hi Ollie, thanks for coming on the World Wars. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks James. So where are we talking to you from? I'm currently in Paris in the building of the campus of the École Militaire because I'm currently detached from SDU to the École Militaire where I'm currently the head of research and studies at the Institute for Advanced National Defense Studies, which is probably for your British audience, the French equivalent to the Royal College of Defense Studies. So basically, we train colonels and civilian equivalents to the highest strategic functions. So I'm currently in Paris. Wow. So you're sitting at the heart of French military thinking in the French capital, which sounds to me like, well, there's no better place to talk about French memories of the Second World War. So let's jump right in. Let's jump into that period at the beginning of the war the fall of France, because it was pretty rapid, wasn't it? Six weeks in total from May to June 1940. What happened? Well, I think a good starting point to try to understand what happened is to discuss how we remember how it happened. And basically, you have two memories of how it happened. The first one is really the school epitomized by the French historian Marc Bloch, which wrote this book, The Strange Defeat, basically a few months after the fall of France, 
and Mark Bloch was himself a resistant, was arrested by the Gestapo in 1944 and killed, but is one of the founding fathers of French history school and is a very respected figure. And in the strange defeat, Mark Bloch basically argues that it's an entire collapse of the elites, that the Third Republic selected a political and military personnel that was so influenced by personal gains that it lost a view of the collective good. Therefore, in his understanding, French society was almost up for grab in the sense that an external push, such as a military defeat, tested the resistance of the system and the system just collapsed. And his interpretation has been extremely powerful because it gave meaning to this very surprising military defeat in 1939, nobody, and especially not the Germans, but neither the British nor the Americans, and least of all the French, expect such a quick military defeat. So there is a kind of need for understanding of why the country that was deemed to be the most powerful military power in Europe up until 1939, winner of World War I, all of a sudden collapses and Mark Bloch provided that meaning. Basically, the fruit was rotten because of a treason from the elites. A second type of interpretation is especially prevalent in the English-speaking world. It's the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, right? Basically, the French armed forces did not fight and it leads to all the jokes that we all know about the French tanks that have six gears, one forward, five backward, and, and so on and so forth. And I've been very impressed by Tony Judds in his memoirs. So he used to write book reviews for the New York Times. And he wrote something about the fall of France. And he reminds the readers that during those six weeks military campaign, France lost 100,000 soldiers. So they fought. And what's even more interesting is that after he wrote the review, he received a number of letters from well-intentioned people and educated people, because, you know, it's New York Review of Books type of readership, right? He received several letters asking, are you sure you get the right figure? Because 100,000 people sounds like a lot. And it is. But because this notion of cheese-eating surrender monkeys has been so prevalent in the English-speaking world, even educated readers were surprised by the figure. So it's a second type of memory from World War II, which is basically France did not fight and collapsed because it did not fight, while obviously it was not the case. And basically, I think the answer right now, especially if you look at the uh, more contemporary historiography, has been a combination of better preparation on the German side and basically better military leadership combined with a bit of luck that happened in a military campaign, which explains poor generalship on the French side combined with better generalship and a bit of luck on the German side explained the collapse. I mean, that is absolutely shocking. A hundred thousand dead in six weeks. And you can understand why people did take a second glance and think, is that really the figure? Because that isn't the dominant historiography at all. But let's jump back to that period, to 1940, and think, how did people like General Charles de Gaulle react when they found out that, well, France had been militarily defeated 
so decisively and so quickly and at such a heavy cost. Yeah, so there is this great quote in the War Memoirs by uh, Charles de Gaulle that he published in 1954. And as a small inside here, he was always very frustrated that Churchill received the Nobel Prize in Literature for his memoirs, which he did not write. Well, de Gaulle wrote his own memoirs and never received the prize for it. And considering the history of let's say, rocky relationship between de Gaulle and Churchill, it was always uh, a, a, a thorny issue for him. I'll put it that way. But in his memoirs, if we are to believe his memoirs, he has this great sentence recalling his reaction to the defeat and to the ceasefire, saying, this is too stupid. The war is off to a terrible start, but it has to continue. And basically, very early on, de Gaulle is one of the few decision makers which have a, an understanding that basically what happened was losing a battle, but it was not the war. And even when de Gaulle decides to go to London and to try to continue the fights, he has this notion that the U.S. has not joined the fight yet. The U.S. is already the arsenal of democracies. When they will come, things will change because it has only been the first moment. But in 1940, de Gaulle is nobody. Is like a brigadier general. It's like no one. Compared with Philippe Pétain, who was marshal, who was the winner of Verdun, so in French memory was, of course, idolized. Pétain was also the one who put an end to the mutinery in 1917 by improving the well-being of soldiers that were on the Western Front against Germany. So he was an idolized figure. De Gaulle is no one. So that's de Gaulle's first reaction. So on June 16th, there is in the Gaulian mythology this moment when he speaks at the BBC and makes his famous speech, basically saying the war is not over, please join me if you can. But nobody listens to him because you have thousands of French people on the streets trying to move away from the German agents. So in 1940, the main reaction from de Gaulle is to say it's not over, but de Gaulle has to build a movement around him. Some of the French elites are totally stunned by the decisiveness of the campaign and were absolutely not expecting that and have this sense of rallying not under the flag but under Marshal Pétain because he appears as a savior, which Pétain, of course, utilizes to push forward his own conservative agenda, well, reactionary uh, <laughs> ideological agenda, which will be the Vichy regime. And you have the millions of French people in 1940 who basically wait to see what happens. It's the main reactions. And the main challenge for de Gaulle for the next two to three years will be to establish himself as the legitimate authority speaking on behalf of France. And that will lead to many, many difficult discussions with both the UK and the US. So go on then, Ollie, give us some insight. How does de Gaulle manage to achieve that? Because is He's pushy. <laughs> I will put it that way. He's very pushy. And he has a two-prone strategy. The first one is to make himself indispensable in London. So becoming the main interlocutor with the UK. And quite frankly, he has a very high opinion of himself, a bit like Churchill, right? This is probably why they love, hated each other. They are very similar in that regard. 
And when you read what De Gaulle writes, he has this really sense of almost saying, I am France. I embody the state and the nation. So the way he does it is by becoming indispensable in London, becoming the main interlocutor, and by building his own forces, especially in the French Empire. And so that will become what is called the Free French, right? Those who decide to join De Gaulle. And that will be difficult, building the Free French movement. That will be difficult because there has been the, the ceasefire and some important parts of the French armed forces, they are legitimist. So there has been a ceasefire. There is a functioning or barely functioning state, which is the Vichy regime. And you have like three stars, four stars, generals, admirals. Why will they join a two stars or one star? In the French system, two star is one star in the British system. So a brigadier is two star for us. Why will they decide to join this unknown person? And building his support in the French Empire is difficult. And there has been some moments when basically the free French fought against the legitimate army that was still responding to orders from Vichy. And the main change happens in 1942. Because in 1942, when the Allies start the campaign in North Africa, it changes the calculus for a number of the armed forces that were still responding to Vichy orders. But it's not before 1942 that things start to change. And it's really epitomized by those who have participated in the Battle of Biharkheim and those who have not. Biharkheim basically happens a few weeks before El Alamein. And it's important for the French mythology because basically it's 4,000 French people who have to hold off 40,000 Italo-German troops so that the British can actually retreat and have a new defensive position in El Alamein. And basically they do it by holding off the German forces for three days, which allows the British to actually retreat and regroup and eventually win at El Alamein. But the thing is that because of the disparity in forces, 4,000 against 40,000, it has become mythologized among the free French. You know, there were those who fought at El Alamein, and it's a moment when General Leclerc says, we will never stop until the French flag flies again on Strasbourg that will have been fled from Germany. So Birakheim for the Free French is really important. And in 1943, there are those who have fought in El Alamein and those who have not and who have joined De Gaulle only after 1942. And there is a parade in Tunis in 1943, during which the Free French or the former Free French who had fought alongside the British they parade with the British forces and the French forces were still legitimate and responded to Vichy until 1942. They actually parade alongside the US. So it's not an amalgamated French forces. The difference between the free French and the regular army who only joined after 42, it takes time to create something which is totally unified and it creates also different sensitivities because the Free French, they have been fighting with the British, alongside the British. And for them, it's the main inspiration. They are brothers in arms. The others, they have been fighting mostly alongside the Americans. So it creates this kind of dichotomy between the two forces. 
So there isn't just one memory of France's wartime experience. You've got the Vichy on the one side, the Gaulian perspective on the other. But then is there also a memory that comes from those who lived through that prolonged occupation? So it's actually the difficulty about the memories of World War II in France. It's very different from World War I because all soldiers in World War I had a relatively similar experience. They fought in the trenches and it created this sense of unicity of experience, right? So they could relate to each other. World War II is extremely different in that regard because you had the Free French who very early on joined De Gaulle and eventually participated in operations in North Africa, in France and Germany. You had the regular army who only joined De Gaulle after 1942 and thus had a relatively different experience from the conflict. You had also, and it's a very unique experience, a French squadron who fought alongside the USSR. The Normandy Yemen squadron basically were French pilots who were operating under Soviet command. France is the only Western country that literally fought not at the same time, but directly under Soviet command during World War II because of this small squadron. So just on the side of those who fought against Germany directly in conventional operations, you have a multiplicity of memories, right? Then there are those who fought in the resistance, who were in France fighting against the invasion, against the occupation, and they were not professional soldiers. Most of them were not professional soldiers at all. So they have a memory and an experience of World War II, which is shaped by, okay, we had all the secret networks, we had to gather the materials that was parachuted by London, and basically the experience of being in the resistance, which itself was organized alongside different movements based on political affiliations. You had the communists, you had the monarchists, you had the republicans. So all those were not unified, politically speaking. So the memories of resistance are themselves segregated alongside political lines. And on top of that, you have those who actually actively collaborated with Germany because it happened as well. And you had a number of French people who willingly joined the Waffen-SS in the uh, Standard Division in Charlemagne, for example. And they were also French. But of course, after World War II, their memory was only glorified by far-right members, right? But all this creates a multiplicity of memories of World War II. What's kind of interesting is the way the collective memory of World War II and of the occupation evolved over time. Because between 1945 and basically the 1970s, the dominant memory was resistance. So there was this notion that basically everyone was a resistant, more or less. And those who were working for the Vichy regime, it's because they really did not have a choice. And in 1970, there has been a shift in the historiography, especially pushed by a book by an American historian called Robert Paxton, who wrote a book on Vichy's France. And it basically shows that Vichy, far from implementing German orders because of coercion, was actually actively collaborating and preempting German wishes going beyond German wishes in terms of finding Jews, for example, to send to Germany. 
So it shifted the memory, which evolved from we were all resistant to we were all complicit in the occupation. And around the 2000s, I would say that the memory has not stabilized, but it had found a new balance and is now embracing the complexity of experiences. Basically saying, yes, some people actually collaborated. Some people actually were in the resistance in the middle. There was a lot of people trying to get by and trying to survive. And so we are moving beyond the almost Manichaean narrative of we were all on the good side. We were all resistant on the inside or we were all on the bad side. We were all collaborating. Now I think there is a balance that is gradually being found in terms of how collective memory is remembering the, uh, the occupation, how it's being taught in high school, for example, how it's portrayed in exhibitions or documentaries, and so on and so forth. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I'm going to add another perspective in there because we had Thomas Battaglia on the show a few weeks ago and Cameron Zinzu, both who have spoken about how the French Empire was involved in the liberation of the metropolitan France as well. It wasn't just Algeria and France itself that was really responsible for freeing the country from its occupation, but you had those from North Africa and West Africa who took to the beaches on Operation Dragoon and in many other battles as well. How did this event of the French Empire coming to the rescue of metropolitan France impact the relationship between France and its empire? So there are two ways in which it impacted the relationship. The first one is in terms of strategic lessons learned, so to speak. And the second one is in patterns of interactions between colonialists and colonized people. In terms of strategic lessons learned, the main lessons learned was that 
France survived because the empire provided strategic depth. And it was from the empire that we could draw resources and basically to regroup and to participate in the multiple battles and campaigns for the liberation of France. Because as you know, there was simultaneously the campaign following D-Day and also the campaign coming from the Mediterranean up north. So basically west, east and south, north that eventually regrouped in Alsace. So it basically created the sense that the empire was fundamental and critical in permitting to provide this strategic depth. And it shaped the relationship between France and the colonies after World War II in the sense that decolonizing was difficult to accept by French elites because it was perceived as losing what was providing a source of strength and a source of resilience for France. Which also explains, you know, the patterns of France-Afrique that emerged after Sub-Saharan Africa was decolonized because France recreated this strategic depth, trying to draw on resources and draw on patterns of political connections that were seen as a source of power, basically. So that was the main strategic lessons learned that the empire provided strategic depth and France, as relatively small territory, but with global ambitions, needed to have the strategic depth that the empire provided. And the way we maintained the strategic depth was by recreating privileged, I would say, relationships with the former colonies. The second lesson was basically in terms of more sociopolitical interactions that it took quite a while to acknowledge the contribution from colonial troops to the liberation of France. It's not until recently that, for example, Senegalese troops that participated in the different campaigns were granted the benefits from the combatant status, right? So it took quite a while to acknowledge this contribution. And I think it has really been during the past 20 years that in terms of collective memory, we remember more and more the contribution from colonial troops. There was a movie in 2006 called Indigène, which basically follows a platoon of North African soldiers landing near Marseille and then going up until Alsace. But it was the first time that it was actually portrayed. And a different number of bills and laws have been adopted that acknowledged and facilitated the providing of resources for former fighters. There's so many narratives, so many memories, so many experiences that combine here, but they also must have left the nation divided. How does a country like France recover socially and politically after the war? After the war, the social and political recovery was based on a myth, because we recreated a myth of we were all resistant, and de Gaulle was a savior that was fighting for France all along. And of course, it was facilitated by the fact that, well, de Gaulle was very much involved in French political life after World War II. So by creating this myth of we were victims, we were never an accomplice of Nazi Germany, it facilitated a kind of new national unity that would have been much more difficult to create otherwise. 
It was also facilitated by the fact that the Cold War started. We can date the official beginning of the Cold War between 1947 and 1949, somewhere along that time. France was initially reluctant in having to choose a side, so to speak, because just after World War II, the main threat for France, as it was perceived, was Germany. We wanted to make sure that Germany would not become a major power again. So having to choose a side between the Soviet Union and the US was not the immediate concern for French policymakers. But already in 1947-1948, clearly, French policymakers have to position themselves. And Georges Bidot, who was Minister of Foreign Affairs at the time, is instrumental in shaping NATO. And what's interesting is that Bidot was adamant in trying to have an automatic defense clause in NATO. They wanted to have an automaticity in terms of if one country was attacked, automatically the other had to come to their defense, which is not the case, as we know, because the US pushed back against it. And we ended up with Article 5, which is all measures as deemed necessary by the specific countries, right? But France was really pushing forward an automaticity in the defense clause, which it did not get. And that kind of started a narrative or at least an understanding of NATO that it's a useful tool for French defense, but it's an incomplete tool because we can, in the end, never entirely trust the U.S. security guarantee. Therefore, we will have to develop our own tool of defense, nuclear deterrence, and so on. We never believed in U.S. extended deterrence. We benefited from it, but we never believed in it. And that feeling that in the end, we can ultimately never trust an alliance is very much shaped by the memories of World War II because there was a sense, rightly or wrongly, but there was a sense that the British ally had left France fighting alone against Germany, first in 1936 by allowing and not backing up France when Hitler made his first push in terms of basically taking over other provinces. There was a sense that the UK did not back France up and therefore France was abandoned. And there was also the sense that in 1940, the French armed forces sacrificed themselves so that the UK could flee at Dunkirk. So the memory of Dunkirk for the French armed forces is that the UK fled and we fought so that they could fight another day. So this is also why Christopher Nolan's movie, when it was released, I think two years ago, does not portray the French armed forces at all almost at all in the movie, it's an entire British-centric narrative, it was not really well received in France because of that reason. Basically saying, well, you know, they could leave because we fought for them and then they forget about us. So it plays into all those traditional narratives of perfidious Albion. In the end, we cannot trust the Brits and so on and so forth. So there are, of course, several centuries of prejudices and cliches that come into play. But it's interesting how they are reinterpreted and how they take on a new life based on new events. So to wrap up, there was this notion that ultimately it's nice to have allies, but we cannot fully trust them. It's also deeply shaped by World War II. Ollie, you are a pro. You're an expert. Thank you for taking us so masterfully through these so many complex narratives of the French Second World War experience which I think really help us dispel some of these long-standing and perhaps outdated myths about the French and the Second World War. Although I think the British and French rivalry won't be disappearing anytime soon. 
Where can people read more of your work and what's coming next? So basically, if people are interested in this topic, this discussion is based on a chapter that I wrote called Beyond the Strange Defeat, French Defense Policy and the Memories of World War II, which should be released sometime in 2021 in a collective volume edited by Dr. Matthias Strohn called The Long Shadow of World War II, which basically looks at the memories of World War II and their impact on defense policy in a number of countries, including France, Germany, Russia, Japan, the US. So it's a really nice collection of how memories actually shape policy. And uh, if people want to read more about this topic, I also recommend Julian Jackson's wonderful biography of Charles de Gaulle. It is a brilliant biography which really masters the interaction between de Gaulle's personal life, the overall political context, and how de Gaulle has become a myth in French political life. So I would really recommend that one. It's a long book, but it's a great read. Well, there you go. The Long Shadow of World War II. You heard it here first. Go out and buy it. Ollie, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.